In late March, uh, I attended a men's conference at our sending church in Cambridge, Hope Fellowship Church. Uh, several men, eight to ten guys from Beacon went um, and heard a, uh, a speaker who was a former pastor in Vermont named Jared Wilson. He, he's now uh, on staff at a seminary in Kansas City, he writes excellent uh, material. He's written a very helpful book called The Imperfect Disciple. I, I'd encourage you to, to read that. Um, he said something during his, one of his talks that has stayed with me, and I wanted to share it with you uh, this morning. Here's what Jared Wilson said. He said, look, you need to understand that the devil has a file on you. The devil has a strategy to take you out. He knows where you're susceptible. He knows your proclivities to sinfulness. The devil has a file on each one of us. And he is out to corrupt Christians so that they no longer shine the holiness of their Savior back to their Savior. The devil has a file on you. Are you aware of where you're weak, of where you're susceptible? The devil has a file on you. You see, Jesus saves us to a holy life. He saves us, he sets our feet on a pathway of sanctification. That's a word that is sometimes thrown around in, in church and theological circles. It's just simply the stepwise process of growing in holiness, growing to reflect the character of your Savior. That's our calling. Jesus has the power to save us and to sanctify us. And so we're going to look at a passage this morning that speaks to the call to holy living, a difficult passage to unpack and to process. It's going to, to speak to one of the most tender areas in our lives, and that is sex and sexuality. It's also going to speak to work, another important area of our lives. The call to holiness. Jesus saves us to a holy way of life. Let's look uh, in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you can find that on page 987 in the hardback Bibles that we've provided uh, on your chairs. If you're here today and you need a Bible, we'd love to give free Bibles away, so in the lobby there are a bookshelf there. Please take some of the, the hardback black Bibles there. They're yours. If a friend needs one, by all means, take one for your friend as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses one through 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The theme of this sermon is that Jesus saves us to a holy life. Jesus saves us to a holy life. Two parts to the outline of this this sermon, Two, two parts. Holiness through sexual purity. We see this in verses one through eight. This will be the bulk of our time together. And then secondly, holiness through diligent work. You see this in verses nine through 12. Holiness through sexual purity and holiness through diligent work. Two areas of great importance in our lives, sexual purity and hard work. The flip side, the issues, the problems and the temptations are sexual immorality and idleness. That's what Paul is trying to interact. Sexual immorality and idleness. And this is a call to not do that, but by the power of the spirit, the power of the gospel in them, to live sexually pure lives and to be diligent at work, to make the most of the day. Jesus saves us to a holy way of life. And we see the the two applications here, sexual purity and diligent work. Paul begins here, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and so please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. Finally is not the conclusion of the letter. This is a transition word to a new topic for Paul. He does this oftentimes. You see it in Ephesians. You think he's wrapping up the letter. He's actually just transitioning to it to a new portion of the letter. So he says, finally, brothers, that's a collective word. He's speaking to men and women, brothers and sisters, brethren in the KJV. So he's not just speaking to guys. He's speaking to guys and gals in the church community. All of you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk, that is, how you ought to live and conduct yourselves. This is something of great importance. We are urging you in the name of, in the authority of the Lord Jesus to walk in a way that pleases him. That's a call to holiness, to live upright, holy lives in this present evil age. The call to holiness is difficult You will run counter to the currents of your culture if you walk in holiness. But Paul is pleading that we do so, that his friends then and now do so. He's pleading with them. He, in fact, is now speaking what he prayed for earlier in his letter. Just rewind with me to verses 11, 12, and 13 in chapter 3. This is the passage that Dave Raffensperger just preached for us. He prays this glorious prayer, pleading before God in verse 11 through 13, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now look, verse 13, 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul has in view the end times, the return of Christ, and he wants to see his Christian friends living in Thessalonica holy and blameless on that day of Christ's return in a way that would honor the Lord Jesus and please him. So he's pleading with God through this prayer in chapter 3, and now he's proclaiming to them, pleading with them to live lives that will please God. He says in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, I taught you this during the mission when I was there for three short weeks, three Sabbath days. He wasn't there long, but he preached his heart out. People were converted, and he didn't just preach the message of salvation. He also preached the message of sanctification. Jesus saves you and calls you to a way of life. It's not okay for you to profess salvation and then to live a shabby life. That very kind of life discredits and, in fact, casts doubt on the credibility of your salvation. Jesus saves you and sanctifies you. He calls you to a holy way of life. We taught you this during the mission. This is the will of God, your sanctification. There's that word, it's twice over in this passage, it's so important. Sanctification is the process by which we are made holy. In a sense, when you trust in Christ, you're justified. You're declared righteous in God's sight, such that if you were to die, you're going to be with God in heaven. You're justified, yet in this pathway of life, he puts you on a pathway of what's called sanctification, incremental, stepwise growth in the character of Christ. Because all of us can attest, once you were saved, were you perfect in your decision-making? No. You and I slip up and we still do, but the journey of life is stepwise, incremental growth. It's oftentimes two steps forward and then three back, and then you fall flat on your face, and by God's grace, he picks you up and you go six forward and then four back. It's just this back and forth. The best illustration, I've shared this with you before, is our lives are like a yo-yo in the hand of a man going up an escalator. That yo-yo is kind of up and down, up and down, but overall the trajectory is onward and upward. That's what it's like to be on the sanctification pathway. There's ups and downs on it, but overall our trajectory is towards Christ-likeness. That's what this pathway is called. It is the will of God that we be sanctified that you do this more and more. Notice what he says in verse 1. He's affirming them. You, many of you are doing this. You're on this pathway. And he just wants to encourage them to do it more and more. Take the next step of growth. Take the next step of growth. Do so more and more. What is that step of growth for you in your own pathway of sanctification, in your own battle against sexual sin, in your own battle for idleness or gossip or whatever proclivity to sin, what's the next right step for you on the pathway? Do so more and more, Paul says. More and more, step by step. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here it is. Here's the issue. He's not going to beat around the bush. This is one of the issues in the church, one that Timothy brought back a report and said, overall, these friends are doing pretty well, but there is some issue of immorality in the church. It's not necessarily crippling the church, but there's some re residue or residual immorality. Now, remember, these are 
These are people from Greco-Roman culture, pagan culture, that had a very loose sexual culture. Anything goes. Don't try to inhibit my liberty in sexuality. Does that sound familiar to you? The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. It was that way in Corinth. It was that way in Athens. It was that way in Thessalonica. It is that way in Boston. Paul says abstain from it. Abstain from sexual immorality. The word here is porneia. That would sound familiar. That's the word in Greek, porneia. It is an umbrella word that covers any kind of sexual activity outside the covenant confines of heterosexual marriage. That's what sexual immorality is. It's multiple times in the New Testament. It is a big umbrella word that covers a lot of things like prostitution, adultery, homosexuality, masturbation, premarital sex, all of it. It's a big umbrella that points to any sexual activity outside the covenant of heterosexual marriage. That's, that's what he is. Abstain from it. Abstain from it. He's pleading with them. The reality is, friends, sexual immorality is imprisoning. It enslaves you. It always overpromises and always underdelivers. I want to read a little a testimony here to see if we can identify with this. Very helpful book on sexual purity. Uh, this is primarily for, for, for men. Um, I, I've read this with, with many, many of my friends. The book is Sexual Sanity for Men, authored by David White. And he writes this about the enslavement of sexual immorality. Do you know the experience of slavery? Do you know what it's like to want to stop masturbating? To want to stop looking at porn or having an anonymous, anonymous sex and realizing that you can't? You've made hundreds of promises to God and others, but your words increasingly ring hollow, even to yourself. You've tried for years to change without success, and you know eventually you'll be at it again. That sounds like slavery to me, and I have been there for eight years in my life. That's bondage, but our culture tells us unrestrained freedom, unrestrained expression of sex and sexuality. Do what you want with whom you want, when you want. Friends, you have to undermine that liberty narrative that our culture is putting out. It's a lie. It's not freedom. It's bondage. It's bondage. Sexual immorality will enslave you. Don't be deceived. It is so deceptive, but it leads to your shacklement and bondage. You see, true freedom is not the absence of restriction. True freedom is living under the right restrictions. Listen, my wife and I are about to celebrate 19 years. I mean, I feel so old saying that. I'm only 42. We got married young. 19 years. You know what, what freedom and beauty in our marriage is? is that I trust my wife. And I know that I'm to have one wife. One wife. One bride. I trust her. She trusts me. There's restrictions there. I will honor the Lord. I'm not to have two wives. I'm not to go after another man or another woman. I am to have a heterosexual 
relationship in the covenant of marriage, and it, it's Laura. I, I, I trust that. I receive that as a gift. I'm living under the right restrictions, the right covenant confines, and there is beauty and there's freedom to that. True freedom, true liberty is not the absence of restrictions. It's living under the right restrictions. Our culture says you can date whomever you want. If you're a man, you can pursue a man. If you're a woman, you can pursue a woman. Just, just chase out the logic of that. Is that true freedom? No, it's bondage, and in the end, it will lead to death. Is a fish free if it jumps out of its created confines of water for the liberty of the shore? No. That fish is out of its God-ordained confines, and it lies gasping on the sand to die. True freedom is not the absence of restrictions. True freedom is living under the right restrictions, and God always gives them. He always gives them. It's his idea. Notice what he says in verse 8. Whoever disregards these instructions doesn't disregard man, but God. These restrictions are God's ideas, and we are in the wisest, healthiest place to honor God's instruction. It gives us actual freedom in this life. Undermine the narrative in the culture right now that says, do what you want with sex and sexuality. It's a lie. True freedom is living under God's right restrictions, God's good design. Let each one of you, verse 4, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. There are some translations, I believe the KJV, that says how to, to take or uh, pursue your own wife. There's some ambiguity here. I believe the ESV translation is, is the most accurate one. Control, master your own body. Have self-control over your sexual desires is what Paul is saying. And it's not something you muscle on your own. Self-control is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's number nine. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, you don't, you don't do it yourself. It's a fruit of the Spirit, alive and well, self-control. So when you read here, control your own body, control your own desires, it means to lean into the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers your self-control. Far too many of us, men and women, are trying to fight sexual sin and sexual temptation in the flesh you got to do it in the spirit. It's the spirit that empowers self-control. Cry out to the Lord, I am going to fall if I don't have you. Holy Spirit, take me, empower me to live a holy life. Control your own body. Spirit-driven self-control is what this is a call to. So that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. How would a lack of self-control in sex wrong another brother or sister in the faith? Well, a few ways. First of all, when you're engaging in sexual activity, premarital sex, adultery, there are multiple people that you're wronging. You're wronging the person. If you're having premarital sex, you've not been married, you're, having, you're actually harming the person that you're doing that with. You're contributing to their sinfulness and they you. 
So you're actually harming that, that brother or sister that you're engaging. You're also harming that person's future spouse. You're wronging them. The, the word is to rip off or to cheat. You're cheating that person's future spouse by stealing their virginity. You're wronging their future spouse. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. When we don't have self-control, we're wronging the person we're engaging in that act with. We're wronging their, their future spouse. If you're committing adultery, you're, you're wronging your spouse and that person's spouse if they have one. It's just a ripple effect of unrighteousness and harm. You wrong people when we engage in sexual immorality. Don't do this in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's a heavy warning. There's a motivation here for holy living. The Lord is an avenger. Those who are given over to sexual sin, who make no effort at fighting it, of fleeing from it, on the day of Christ's return, are in a precarious position. The Lord is an avenger, Paul says. He will mete out his judgment on those who are given over to sexual sin, who are, who are making a practice of it and therefore denying the very profession of faith that they, that they have made, perhaps. The Lord is an avenger. Friends, what, what Paul's saying is we're accountable. It matters how we live in this life. We are accountable. The Lord is going to come and we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account to every word spoken, every deed done. The Lord is an avenger on that day that he comes. May we hear and long for the words of well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I know I run the risk here of shaking some assurances of salvation. Here's what the Bible says, okay? Anyone, 1 John, anyone who makes a practice of sinning is a child of the devil. Okay, so what, is, what does that make? If you make a practice of sinning, and in this case, in this application, sexual sin. That means that you are not battling it at all. Your conscience is seared. You're giving it a regular workout, just like if you practice basketball that we're going to do for a whole week. You make a practice of it. You go to the gym and you do it. It's unrestrained. Practice of sinning. You're giving it a regular workout. You're not trying to fight it, to do battle against it. You're just doing it over and over again. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning, this is a child of the devil. I mean, you're not a child of God. If you look inside and see, I am not battling this at all. Frankly, I'm apathetic towards it. Maybe you've made a profession of faith as a, as a young person, friends. I, I just, I, I plead with you. You need to take inventory. You need to examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith or not. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning over and over, no battle, no care, apathetic towards holiness, you need to question your salvation. It's the most loving thing that, that, that I can say to you. But if you're here today, and yes, you're struggling with sin, well, so do I. You're, you're battling in it, though. You're repentant of it. You're sorrowful over it. Friend, your, your salvation is, is secure. Battle against it. Against it. Beware the apathy that can set in. It's the battle that is indicative that the Lord is in you and carrying you forward. Do battle against it. Abstain from it. Fight the good fight. 
against sexual sin. Notice what Paul says at the end of this section, verse 8. God gives his Holy Spirit to you. Therefore, whoever disregards this instruction, disregards not man but God, this is God's idea, sexual purity is God's idea, it's not man, it's God's instruction, it's good, we're right to follow it. And if we don't, we're disregarding not man but God, and there's this gracious gift who gives us his Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers our right living. Don't spurn the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because it's that Spirit that empowers holiness. You can't live a holy life without abiding in the power of the Holy Spirit. Cling to him. He's with you. He's your advocate, your counselor, your comforter. He's with you always if you're a Christian. Call out to him. In the hour of temptation, he's there. He's there. He will sustain you. He will pick you up when you fall and you repent. He has given you the Holy Spirit. Paul ends this section with a great gift. It's the Holy Spirit. Lean into the Spirit. Jesus saves us to a holy life. First, through sexual purity. Second, and more briefly, through hard work, through diligent work. Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Okay, well, that... We're called to love one another in the church. That makes sense. What's the particular application here? What's Paul getting at? Let's read further, verse 10. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But, here's the, here's the issue, here's the rub. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. You read this letter in conjunction with 2 Thessalonians, there's an issue of idleness in the church. There's a collection of people in the church who've linked up with some wealthier people in the church and who are taking advantage of those wealthier people's generosity. They're living dependently upon them when they are healthy enough to work and be gainfully employed themselves. That's the issue here. Don't be dependent. In other words, don't be moochers. If you're healthy and have the ability to work, to do menial work, labor with your hands, that's what Paul's talking about. Hey, I do. I'm a tent maker, Paul says. I work hard for my living. I'm bivocational. I also preach and teach and receive an offering periodically, but I work hard with my hands. Most people were laborers then. He's saying work hard. Some had become Christians and suddenly they're, they're joined up with different classes now. That's the beauty of the church in Greco-Roman culture that had a little bit of a caste system, you wouldn't rub shoulders with wealthier people. But now in the church, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Suddenly they found themselves in a church with wealthier people. Some of the less affluent people were shouldering up with more affluent people, quitting their labor jobs and just living off the generosity, taking advantage of people. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Work diligently with your hands. It glorifies God when we work diligently, no matter what our work is, there's no hierarchy of importance in work. All of it glorifies God. There's dignity in work. What is that for you? What has God gifted you to do, trained you to do, educated you to do? And are you doing that to your very best ability? Work heartily unto the Lord, not unto man, Paul says in Colossians 3. For it's the Lord Christ that you're ultimately serving. And whatever we do, you know who our CEO is, right? 
You know who you're ultimately accountable, not to your boss. You need to honor your boss, even if he's unrighteous or she's unrighteous. It's the Lord Christ that we're serving. He's the CEO ultimately. Work hard. But there is an issue of idleness here. People who are not only just not working, but they're also meddling in people's affairs. Live quietly. Mind your own business. Idle time is the devil's playground. When you have too much time, and I think this is tied to sexual immorality. When you have too much time on your hands, it's the devil's playground. You end up gossiping and meddling in other people's affairs that is no business to yours. You also end up falling into sexual sin. Watch idleness is what Paul's saying. Idle time is the devil's playground. Get out of your house. If you go on a walk, serve a neighbor, do something. If you find yourself in a season of joblessness, for example, volunteer. If you can't be gainfully employed, go volunteer. I'll give you plenty of jobs here at the church. You can come and help. Volunteer your time. Use your gifts somehow. Do not sit at home, friend. Do not sit at home. It's demoralizing. Get out. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you need to call a friend. I am struggling. I'm in the doldrums of discouragement in my job search. Please come and help me. There are people here who want to help you and walk with you. Go. Shoulder up with other people. Some of us have legitimate disabilities, be they physical or mental, and, and we live in a country that has some, some SSI benefits. I would just encourage you to, to, to search your heart, be honest before the Lord. What can you do? There are some things that you can't do, certainly, but what can you do with your time and with your hands and with your ability? All of us have an ability to, to bless somebody. Don't be idle. Don't be idle. Use your gifts. Bless other people. Be gainfully employed or engaged or volunteering in some setting. It's healthy for your soul. God created work in Genesis chapter 2 before the fall. Some people think that work is a result of the fall. No, toil and difficulty in work is a result of the fall. We will be working for all eternity and enjoying it enjoying it, not finding our identity in it, but working as a response, a grateful response to the Lord, because there's dignity in it. It existed before the fall. It will exist into all eternity, doing meaningful labor for the Lord Jesus. There's a goodness, there's a dignity in work. There's a witness involved here, as we conclude. Paul says, work diligently so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What's at stake here? Gospel witness is at stake. Because of their poor witness, some of those people who were mooching, they were displaying a false gospel to the people in Thessalonica, such that some non-Christians could say, hey, I'm going to go into that church, and I'm going to rub shoulders with a wealthy person who's going to be generous to me, and I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to become a Christian because I don't want to work. That is a false gospel. It's a poor witness. It's not the true gospel. So their worklessness was soiling the proclamation of the gospel so that people were entering the church because, hey, I'll, I'll take a free lunch. I'll take a freebie. I'll quit my job as a bricklayer. Paul says, beware your witness to outsiders. That's not the gospel. No, the gospel is you are a sinner and desperately in need of a Savior. His name is Jesus. Trust in him. He restores your heart. He forgives your sin. He sets you on a path of holiness and will welcome you into eternity. 
But all the while, be diligently at work. Don't be mooching off people. Beware of the witness, Paul says. As we conclude, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm going to be very careful. The message for you is not primarily stop sexual immorality or stop being lazy. Those are some good things to do. The primary message for you is to look to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ first because once you do and he enters your life through your faith in him and he changes you by his grace, then he empowers you to live in sexual purity and to be diligent in your work. So the primary message here is look to Christ. Look to Christ. And if you are a Christian and you're struggling with either one of these two temptations and sin patterns that we see in this text, the same man, look to Christ. He is our only hope in the midst of sexual sin. He's our only hope. He's the one who empowers it. Paul concludes this letter. Just flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read verses 23 and 24. And I want you to hear the hope that he has for holy living. He prays this word of benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Complete that stepwise process. He's going to do it. He promises to do it. May he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the encouragement. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who is ultimately responsible for your sanctification? The Lord Jesus is. You and I have a role to play. We're actively dependent, actively dependent. We're not passive in this. We cling to the cross. We abide in him, John chapter 15. Abide in him and he will produce most, much fruit. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Look to Christ. Trust in him at all times. He will accomplish the work that he desires as you look in faith to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your warning. God, help us to do some soul searching now and this afternoon and throughout the week. Each one of us has areas of sin, temptations, proclivities, to failure and sinfulness. Please, Lord, help us to be honest with you and honest with ourselves, to step out of the shadows, to step into the light. I know it's painful to be exposed, but it's liberating. Help us to walk in holiness for your glory, for our good, and the good of gospel witness in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.